Hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, why don't you pick it up and find Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Uh, I will just mention today, uh, at the close of our service, we are going to chrismography this place uh, in the Hanging of the Green, which is a yearly event here in the life of Citadel Square, where this sanctuary turns from uh, beautiful to incredible. Uh, so uh, if, you're, if you're hanging around after the service, there'll be lots of uh, generals giving direction about how that needs to happen, but I'll, I'll remind you about that at the end of our time. Uh, Malachi chapter 2. If you don't know where Malachi is, find the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and turn to your left one book and you will land in Malachi. We're in the middle of a series on Malachi that will take us right up into Christmas uh, and into the new year. Well, really up until Christmas and Christmas Eve, we'll finish this series then. Uh, last week, we looked at the, the need for spiritual leadership among God's people. And we looked at the rebuke that Malachi gave to the spiritual leaders, the priesthood of their day. And we walked through, really, the expectations that God had for these spiritual leaders. Uh, and up to this point in the book of Matthew, I think what you've seen is that this group of people who have come now from exile back into their home country with restored altar, restored temple, restored priesthood, they're struggling to do it right. Uh, and what we've seen in the first part of this book in Malachi chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is that uh, they have a problem with worship. They have a problem with honoring God. They have a problem with reverencing who he is. We have a problem with bringing the right kind of sacrifices that God expects. And we have a real problem that we saw in Malachi chapter 2 last week, 1 to 10, with these spiritual leaders who should be teaching the people but instead are shirking their duty. Well, what you're going to have as Malachi continues his discussion with the people of Israel and Judah here is he is going to move from the spiritual leadership of the nation and he's going to move into dealing with the social and cultural problems that flow from an aberrant or a broken spiritual leadership system. What do you think? If you have problems at the spiritual leadership system, I'm sorry, the spiritual leadership level, are you going to have problems in the culture? Are you going to have problems that flow from a misunderstanding of God's holiness, his, uh, how we ought to reverent him, reverence him, how we ought to worship him? Yeah, you're going to have a lot of social problems. And what you're going to see here in this text this morning is the intersection between two significant relationships. Malachi is going to start by looking at the culture, and then he's going to move into the home. And as such, what he's going to do is start with the spiritual problem that the culture has at large. Things that they've forgotten. They don't understand how to connect their spiritual lives to their social lives. And then what Malachi is going to do is move into the home and he's going to talk about marriage. So not only if you have a problem in the level of spiritual leadership are you going to have problems in the culture, but are you going to have problems in the home too? What you think? Yeah, you sure are. Well, Malachi is going to address both of those things here today. Uh, what happens for all of us is that when our worship is askew and our worship is not aligned with the way God expects us to worship him, our worship, our spiritual lives always leak because they always have a tendency to taint our words, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, our relationships. And perhaps some of the most significant relationships in our lives are married to the fact that we are spiritual beings. And when we worship wrongly, have you found out that your relationships get bumpy? That the words that come out of your mouth aren't encouraging? That the feelings you have are irrational feelings that you can't track down and make sense of? Well, what you're going to see here here is that when worship gets out of kilter, what is going to happen in a culture is that the wounded, the weak, and the vulnerable always pay the price. And God has something to say about that. All right? Well, let's pray. And we'll look here at Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Father, as we approach your word here today, we pray that as the Psalms say, the unfolding of your words gives light that we would long to understand the things that you might teach and confront for us through the prophet of Malachi here this morning, that we would live lives that would be reflective of embracing the truths and the challenges and the exhortations of a passage like this. We pray uh, as we start for the marriages in this room that uh, need to be reminded of your faithfulness and your covenant love to us in the person of Christ. We pray for husbands and wives who have made promises this morning 
uh, to one another and are looking at those promises in light of your faithfulness to us. And Father, I pray that you would shape us and um, correct us where we need correction here this morning and that, we, we, that ultimately we would be reminded of your great faithfulness to us because of the cross from the things that we've sung about here already that would shape our uh, attention and our affection, we ask for your grace. And that as we open your word, your spirit would give light to it to help us understand the things that we ought to see. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Y'all there? This text is uh, a little bit different than what we've seen up to this point. Up to this point, we've had some disputation between the prophet and the people. There have been some... Um, uh, some, uh, what do you call them? Or things that Malachi has said that the people don't understand. Uh, and they have responded with, well, how have we treated you that way? How have we polluted you? How is it that you love us? And they've asked God a lot of questions and they're arguing. Well, Malachi turns the tables here and God starts asking some questions. And you're always in trouble when God starts asking questions, Right? You know, when you read through the Bible and you have God start asking questions, God never asks questions to get information. Do you know that? God asks questions to give you information. And that's how this passage starts. And Malachi, as he starts this, it's as if Malachi uh, says, all right, um, family, all right, community, gather around. Because Malachi, it seems, what we see in this passage, that Malachi himself is a part of this community. He doesn't stand distant from it and say, you guys have a problem. But he says, we have a problem. And when he starts that way, it tells you that Malachi has a real heart for these people. He has a real heart for his community because he recognizes we have some issues and we have some problems that we need to deal with. And what he'll do from the beginning here is start to ask some questions. You'll have the people respond in a few verses, but right from the beginning, Malachi is going to set the stage to create some assumptions that we all agree on and that his community would all agree on. He's not asking hard questions, but he's asking theological questions that should shape how our social and relational lives work. So look at verse 10 with me. Malachi 2 verse 10. Have we not all one father? Now, these are rhetorical questions in a sense, and when Malachi asks that, he would be asking the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, don't we all have one father? And the natural response would be what? Yes, we, we all have one father. The Old Testament is somewhat reticent to describe God as father. It's a very rare term. You get it really through implication in passages like Exodus chapter 4 when God tells Pharaoh, let my beloved son go that he may come and worship me. And by implication, God takes fatherhood and authority over this group of people. He says essentially that we are a family, that I am your father and you are my son. And they're corporate terms that God uses to refer to his Old Testament covenant people, Israel. He follows up with a second question that says, has not one God created us? Which again is yes. So you would go all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish nation, not only in the Exodus where God takes corporate responsibility for his people, but even before that, when God begins the very Jewish nation through the forefather and the patriarch Abraham. The Jewish people are a people of miracle. There's no reason they should be there unless God was faithful to his promise to Abraham, who he took by the hand and said, through you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. So right from the beginning when Malachi asks these questions, what's the assumption? Well, the assumption is that we have a corporate and ethnic and spiritual and religious heritage together. We're, we're all in this together. Now, this is not much different than when you get to the New Testament. When you get to the New Testament, the New Testament church is not mono-ethnic, it's multi-ethnic, but there's a same and similar kind of expectation that God has when he relates to the New Testament church. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 says that, let us not uh, essentially speak falsely to one another, for we are members of one another. That when you move into the New Testament church, that is, people from every single kind of background, slave, free, Jew, Greek, male, female, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of nationalities, there's still a unity that is created through Christ who is the head of his church. 
So when the book of Corinthians talks about the body with Christ as the head, we have all parts that are equal yet function different. So when Malachi begins this way, he says, consider our unity. Consider the fact that God has done something to bring us really into relationship with himself and God has started something in us that we have a history together. We have united history and we have united relationship with one another, which makes his third question just such a hammer. Look at the third question he asks in verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. You see all the, the plural pronouns? You see how Malachi puts himself right in the midst of the people to look at the social dynamic of his day and to say, why then, based upon the fact that God started us as a people, based upon the fact that we all would call God Father, why then are we treating each other like this? Why then do we have relationships that look like this? Why then are we faithless to one another? Faithless is really the key term in these paragraphs in 10 through 16. It's going to be mentioned five different times. And faithless isn't uh, necessarily a word that has a lot to do with belief. It's a word that uh, is often used, if you have a cross-reference there, you should have three or four cross-references in Isaiah. Do you have those in your Bible? You see those? Move your head in a direction if you have a Bible. Good. You should have some cross-references there in Isaiah. In Isaiah, they're used about three or four different times. Essentially, the word means treachery. The word means traitor. Someone has committed treason. Now, what is treason? Treason, if in the simplest term, is the violation of the social relationships that we have in duty to one another, in relationship with one another. Treason is one of the most awful crimes that you can commit against your country because it violates the very trust and commitment that you have to your people. So Malachi says to the people, we're all committing treason with one another. We're treacherous toward one another. We're all traitors. Because we've profaned, <clears throat> look at what it says, profaned the covenant of our fathers. We've sinned against, we've defiled is the word that has been previously translated in the book of Malachi. We've defiled the covenant of our fathers, which goes back probably to the relationship that God has with his people in Exodus chapter 19. He said, I brought you to myself that you would be my treasured possession out of all the people on the earth. And see, what Malachi is recognizing is that a community that has forgotten God will inevitably result in treachery and traitorous actions toward one another. This is why you ultimately can't, we, no matter who you are and no matter what your background is, I grew up in the time during the L.A. riots uh, when, when there were fires set and anger stoked and um, one of the things that you recognize if you live long enough is that you, you have communities that are broken. You have relationships that are lost. You have families that are uh, uh, crushed as a result of forgetting who God is and what he has done. And Malachi, right from the beginning, calls back to the objective reality of God and who he's done, which tells us that you can't really have community reform without truth. You can't have healthy communities where we treat each other the way God would expect us to be treated if we remove God. And in every situation, culturally, socially, economically, when you remove God, what happens to a community is this right here. You lose respect. You lose value for one another. You lose the great anchor of God who has spoken and created his people, redeemed his people, brought them to himself, and now expects them to live and to relate in a way that is reflective of his truth that he has spoken. So you can feel the weight in Malachi's heart as he looks around at this religious community that has come back after 70 years of exile and is looking with, at one another, and they still continue to treat each other treacherously. So Malachi can see the relational and the social and really religious from the past couple weeks carnage that's going on. And now what he's going to do is he's going to put his finger on what the spiritual plaque is. What is the plaque in the arteries that creates this kind of situation socially? And you might think he's going to go back and he's saying, you've got to fire your leaders and you've got to get new leaders. 
You got to clean out the temple and you got to bring right sacrifices and you've got to do a lot of things to make sure that we would fix this problem of being treacherous with one another. But what he's going to do is he's going to move from the fact that there's social problems again back into what is going on in the heart of his people. So what is happening in the heart of his people shows up in verse 11. Judah has been, there's the word again, the second time you see it, faithless. Judah has been treacherous. Judah has been a traitor. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. You have a term there. Uh, that is used in the Old Testament quite often, that term abomination. A lot of times what happens is uh, that word abomination shows up in relationship between God's people and the people of the surrounding nations. God will describe the behavior of the surrounding nations and say the behavior of the surrounding nations should not characterize the behavior in your relationship with me and the relationship in your community. These nations out here commit abominations. But when the word is used in context with God's people, it refers to kind of two different things. You can read this and do Deuteronomy chapter 17. But in Deuteronomy 17, the Deuteronomy 17 begins with the fact that people bring defiled sacrifices and offerings to the temple, and God calls it an abomination. Now, have we seen that in Malachi so far? Yeah, we've seen defiled sacrifices. They don't respect the religious leadership. They don't respect the knowledge of God that they ought to have, and therefore they have no value for God, no honoring of who he is. And God in Deuteronomy 17 calls that an abomination. But then, in the remainder of the first part of Deuteronomy 17, God calls another thing an abomination. It's the same thing that's happening here. It's it's idolatry. So that there's a way to, to relate to God in a way that God finds disgusting. In fact, he finds it so disgusting that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it results in the stoning of the individuals who commit this kind of religious, idolatrous perversion. And you see it in the remainder of verse 11 here. This abomination has been committed in Israel. God says, you don't have a problem with people out there. You have a problem in here. Well, what is their problem? Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. They've defiled the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, when you look at, you see that term sanctuary? See that term? Sanctuary is not, it's an interpretation. Literally, in the Hebrew, the word is uh, holiness. Do you know that? So when Malachi says this, he goes, Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord. Now, holiness has less to do in the Old Testament, really in the New, about being morally upright and righteous, and more with being separated. So here's what Malachi is saying to the people. You, don't, you have a social problem in your midst with the way that you relate to one another. But you have a religious problem in your relationship with God is that you have married the daughter of a foreign God. You have committed a breach of relationship with God because you've brought other lovers into this relationship. You've worshipped other gods in this relationship and what you have is not a singular, a holy, a separate and distinct relationship with God that controls how we relate to one another in our community. You have divided loyalties at the level of your heart. Your nation worships too many things. It's not that these people are worshipping God poorly, which is what we saw in Malachi chapter 1, right? It's that these people are not worshipping God only. There have been other loyalties, other gods, other priorities that have crept into their relationship with God. So, hey, we'll take God of the sanctuary. We'll give him whatever's laying around. But I also have other worship that I need to do. I also have other things that are priorities to me. God's important, but he's not the most important. I've got lots of other things that compete for my attention. And you see this as you move through the Old Testament is that when the people of Israel come out of the nation of Egypt, Egypt has a whole pantheon of gods. You have gods for fertility and gods for the Nile and gods for uh, agricultural success. You've got gods of the rain and gods of the earth. And now here's what you have among God's people is that now God's people are coming to worship at the temple and Malachi is telling them, you have committed yourself spiritually to other gods. We're not in one-on-one relationship anymore. I'm just one of your spiritual lovers. So what do you think? How do you think God feels about that? 
Are we surprised that the social result is treachery and treason when we don't have a commitment to obey the first commandment? Worship the Lord only, him shall you serve. Are we surprised that our relationships are a mess? Are we surprised that we have problems in our community? Are we surprised that we commit treason against one another when we ought to be devoted to God and devoted to one another because of who God is and what he has done? Judah's profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The reason it's translated sanctuary is what should the sanctuary be? Well, the sanctuary should be the place of singular devotion, shouldn't it? It should be the reminder of he alone is my God and I am his son. He alone is my God and I am his daughter. That there's no other more important relationship than me and God. Not me and looks, not me and money and God, and not me and looks and money and God, and not me and success and influence and money and looks and God. It's me and God alone. There's one relationship that has sway over every single area of my life, over my tongue, over my feelings, over my work, over my money, over my job, over my body, over you name it. God first, God only. Worship him alone. It ought to be the place of separation and devotion to God. But these people have now allowed other loyalties to characterize their relationship with God. What are the consequences? Look at verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. What happens when people bring divided loyalties into the sanctuary and into the temple of God and into the very place they bring worship? God says, eventually, through your lack of repentance and your spiritual idolatry, you will be cut off from among God's people. This is an Old Testament version of how church discipline works in the New Testament. When we confront one another with sin, there ought to be a repentance because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and a restoration of relationship. But if there isn't, and there's constant spiritual idolatry, constant refusal to do what Jesus has said, constant refusal to put his word second or his word alongside the word of other people, then what will happen is an inevitable removal from the community of people who are called to worship God and worship God alone. May he be cut off from the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Isn't that interesting? The, yeah, I know, I know I have spiritual idolatry. I know I worship God and, God plus, God fill in the blank, God and my, whatever your idolatry of the day is or your current idolatrous struggle. But look at what the people are doing. They bring their cultural idolatry, their mixed devotions, their divided loyalties, but they still bring offerings. Isn't that interesting? Well, I want to make sure that I also worship God too. That God gets a piece. God gets a part. God doesn't have my whole heart. I've got other things I need to do, other devotions, other priorities in my life, but I'm still going to bring an offering to God. Now, here's the emphasis in 10 through 13. The emphasis, you seen the emphasis? The emphasis is on the spiritual reality and the undivided heart that God expects from his people. And he said, we have a national problem is that we have conflicting tensions and conflicting loyalties with other foreign gods, other foreign deities that seek for your attention, approval, and emphasis. And God says the result of that is social chaos. But Malachi's not done. We could just end the sermon right here and go, that's a problem, isn't it? That's a problem in our community. It's a problem in our homes. It's a problem in lots of problems, right? We recognize the need to continuously come back in our relationship with the Lord. We sing in our hymns, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Amen? We feel that reality. That there's, there's opportunities or people or influence or work or that constantly vie for my spiritual attention to put God, not second, just God among. And God says it's me only. Now, look at verse 13. Here's the second thing that is a problem. Verse 13, this second thing that you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears 
with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. What did the people do in the previous verse? I got divided loyalties. I got worship. I got a lot of worship services I got to go to because I got to worship this God over my money. I got to worship this God over my fertility. I got to worship this God over my agriculture. I got to worship this God because I got to get a good business deal. And I got to go, you know, go to this other one too because God, now yeah, God, you make our heaven and earth. You know, he created us. He's the father. I get, I got to worship him too. And I'll bring a little bit of offering to him. But now in verse 13, the people are dejected. They're discouraged. Would you say this person has they're an emotional wreck? They're emotionally a mess. They're coming up to the front of the church and they're crying on the steps. They're weeping. They're groaning. Their chest is heavy. They're, they're crying out. They're, they're crying so much that they're flooding the altar with tears. What an image that is. How emotionally intense are these people who are coming to God? And going, I'm bringing the offering. I'm doing all the things I ought to be doing. I know I'm worshiping other things, but God, you won't pay attention to me. God, you won't accept my offering. You won't accept my prayers. Where are you? You've turned off the, the blessing. And Malachi said, here's the second thing you do. You want an answer from God. You want God to respond with favor. You want God's attention. You want his insight. But you won't put away your idols. He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor in our, in, accepts it, I'm sorry, with favor from your hand. Now you'd think at this point that Malachi's counsel might come back to cleansing the temple, bringing right sacrifices, reverencing the Lord. You think that the turning off of the blessing, God refusing to accept their offering, might be as a result of the offerings they're bringing. But again, Malachi keeps preaching to the heart. He keeps preaching in here. Don't you hate that? When you read the Bible and the Bible gets you here, it doesn't just get you here on the outside. It gets you here. And it starts aiming at the loyalties of your heart, the things that, that you're devoted to. And that's Malachi's problem here. So Malachi is not only going to address the spiritual problems in the leaders last week. He's not only going to address the, address the social problems that are happening in the community as a result of their spiritual idolatry, but now he's going to bring it home. And here's where the people have a problem. Because the people look repentant, worshipful, eager, earnest in their relationship with God. They look super invested, like God really matters to them. Them. And God's not paying attention. And here's what Malachi says, verse 14. But you say, why does he not? I'm bringing the offerings. What else does God want from me? Why won't he pay attention to my prayers? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So not only is he not responding because of their spiritual unfaithfulness, not only is God turning off the blessing and giving no regard and paying no attention to their offerings because of their corporate syncretism and their corporate idolatry, but God is also looking at the promises they made to their wives. He's looking at the kind of men that these guys are in their community. He's looking at whether or not these are the kind of men who will stay faithful to the vows that they have made. And the picture here in Malachi 2 verse 14 is, is very interesting, isn't it? Because look at how it starts. Why doesn't God pay attention to us? Why isn't God responding with favor on the offerings we're bringing? And God goes back to the very beginning. Guys, you remember when you married your wife? Do you remember the, the first dates? Do you remember the, the very beginning of when you started going, I'm going to go talk to her. She is an interesting person. I'd like to get to know more about her. And God goes all the way back to the wedding day. 
So you notice what God has done, Malachi has done in his counsel thus far. He said, don't we have one father? Well, yeah, we do. We have one father. We have a long relationship with God, hundreds of years of relationship with God, our Jewish people. Didn't one God create us? Well, yeah, of course, all the way back to Abraham, we have a relationship. And you see what God does here relationally? God says, you remember that time you got married? You remember how good she looked? Do you remember standing before your family and your friends? And look at what Malachi says. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. You know, sometimes I tell young couples, and I think it bears out with a, with a passage like this, that these young couples come and they stand here, and there's many marriages that I've, I've officiated here in our church, and they come and they stand here and they, ma- they make vows, they make promises, right? And they stand here looking good, voice quivering, and they can't remember, I lead them very slowly. I go, do you, Dave, do me, Dave, take you, Cynthia, take you, Cynthia. And you know, his knees are, don't lock them, brother. Don't lock your knees. You just quit swaying. All right. Right? And they go back and forth. You take her from this day forward, the have and the hold, for richer and for poorer, in sickness and health, for better or for worse, till death do you part. I do. And that's a joke, because I cried like a baby at my wedding. I cried so much at my wedding that my wife was like, are you okay? Is Is this still going to happen? And Suzanne, if you know Suzanne, Suzanne has like ice water in her veins. Like that's, she's, she told her bridesmaids, get your game face on. We're getting married. And she walked in. But in many ways... This man and this woman can stand there and, they, and, and the, uh, the person on the other side doesn't matter in a sense because they're promising to be the kind of man that God wants them to be in that marriage from that day forward, right? That's what vows are. I promise to be this kind of person when you're sick, this kind of person when you're well. I promise to be this kind of person when we've got a lot, when we've got a little. I promise to be this kind of person when it's good and when it's hard and I'm laying my head down on my, on my pillow, not sure what the next day is going to bring. I promise to be that. And God says, do you remember when you promised that woman? Because I was there and I heard what you said and I heard the promises that you made to be the kind of man that you wanted to be and that I expect you to be. He doesn't call you your wife today. He says the wife of your what? Youth. You remember? Because now I'm looking at the marriages. I'm not just looking at social problems and treachery among the relationships out there. I'm looking at you and her. And I'm asking you, how are you treating her? Because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been what? There it is again. You have been treacherous. You've been a traitor. You've committed treason, though she is the, your companion and your, you know, companion, what that word is, companion, it means friend. It's typically used of equal relationships in the Old Testament. So there's a sense here in which there's parity and equality, even in the Old Testament, that there isn't just a patriarchal system, but God looks at the marriage, even in the Old Testament, as one of equality between husband and wife. They both enter in with different roles, but they both enter in with a kind of quality and uniqueness and uh, parity in relationship with one another. She was your friend. You looked at her eye to eye. Like Adam and Eve, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And God says, I was there. I was witness to the promises that you made, but you have been faithless, you have been treacherous to the wife of your covenant. The emphasis probably of what's happening in the, in the context here in Malachi chapter 2 is that uh, the men are leaving their relationships with their wives and they're deciding to get a new relationship, maybe one alongside their wife, but they're not existing in monogamy, they're existing in polygamy because they're bringing in other wives who are more interesting, who look better, who are worshiping different kinds of foreign gods, and now the men have a home that is divided. 
because now I have a wife, just like Solomon. If you've read about Solomon's downfall, it says now Solomon in 2 Kings, uh, 1 Kings 11, says that Solomon loved many foreign women. And what happened? They inevitably corrupted his relationship with God. Inevitably, he had divided loyalties. Inevitably, he didn't worship the God who had blessed him with so much. And inevitably, they created his downfall. And here's probably what is happening in Malachi's day as well, is that they're taking wives uh, who, are, who are worshiping other gods. They're not taking wives from within the community who say, we worship Yahweh, the covenant maker, the one who has known us and loved us and sustained us all the way into deportation and all the way back into exile. We're picking up extra women along the way. And God is looking at them and he's saying, you are breaking your vows to your wife. Are you surprised that I'm not paying attention to your offerings? Unless you think this is just an Old Testament idea, Peter puts it like this. He says, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, literally according to knowledge. Be a PhD in your wife, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And then he finishes and says, lest your prayers be hindered. What does that mean? It means that you flood the altar with tears, but you don't, you're not faithful to your wife. You don't keep your word with her, and now you expect me to give you attention to regard your offering when you have not been the man that you need to be? When uh, Suzanne and I do, we've done premarital for a decade plus with young couples, and um, one of the sessions that we do is we spend time talking about covenant. Uh, and commentators note that this marriage covenant that is referenced here is not a contract. It's not a if you do and then I will and I will and then you do. And we talk about what it means to, uh, we take this from Colossians chapter 3 that says, work heartily as unto the Lord and not for man. And one of the things we say is, is when you make a covenant with this person on the other side, you are choosing to fulfill your vows, which essentially when you say all these vows that we just talked about, you are making a commitment to make a predetermined decision on your wedding day to be the kind of person that is going to be the fulfiller of those covenant promises later. You're going to make a predetermined decision about what you're going to do when life punches you in the face. Anybody have marriages that get tough from time to time? Okay, one. Thank you, Elizabeth, for being honest. <laughs> Anybody? I mean, are divided loyalties in our hearts a problem in our marriages? It only haunts every marriage. And covenant is saying, this is who I'm going to be when we're rich. This is who I'm going to be when we're poor. I'm going to make a predetermined decision on my wedding day about the kind of woman that I'm going to be when it gets tough. Amen? I'm going to make a predetermined decision about the kind of man that I'm going to be when life gets tough. Amen? That's what we're expecting. So we tell these couples, what happens if life gets hard? You get God in the center of your, not peripheral, this part. You get God in the center of your windshield. And you stay faithful to God, number one. And then you stay with the promises that you have made to your spouse. So you can't, you take God out, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if you take God out of the center of a marriage? You know what wins? The strongest, the fastest, and the one who's the loudest. The one with the most important preferences. You take God out of the center, then you just have war. You have treachery. You have manipulation. You have control. You have fighting. But if God is in control and God's the one who says, you didn't make a promise just to her, you made a promise to me. And you didn't make a promise just to, just to him, you made a promise to me. It's that kind of marriage that has a foundation that'll last. Now, we're closing out in the last two verses. These two verses are the most difficult to translate in the whole book of Malachi. And some commentators say the whole Bible. So hang on, put on your bike helmet. Let's get to it. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Literally, here's how, and just to give you a sense of how the, what the Hebrew actually says and how the translators try to make sense of this, here's what the Hebrew says, quote, and not one has done and a remnant of the Spirit to him. That's like a five-year-old trying to write English for the first time. <laughs> so, 
It's not real clear what this means. You may have a Bible. The NASB says, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. As if to say, this isn't how God's people act. The ESV puts it like this, did he not make them one? Which I think bears out with the idea of the oneness of God that we've seen already in this passage. One Father, one God, did he not make them one? And it bears out, I think, in what Jesus has said in Matthew, you know, Matthew 19, when he says they're no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate, put asunder, rip apart. And God says, not only did you make promises to me about the kind of man and the woman that you were to be on that wedding day, but I blessed it and I put the spirit right between you. I made you. Isn't that true, husbands and wives, that you become one in a way that is far more than just agreement and handshake and writing the certificate that goes to the courthouse. You become one spiritually. You become one mystically. You become one in a way where God knits souls together. Jesus believed that. Malachi shows us that. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What's the goal? Having a singular devotion to Jesus Christ in our marriages. I tell couples this all the time. I've told them this for years. The most important relationship you bring into your marriage is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Number one. If you hear nothing I say, if that's all the premarital counseling that you get right there, you'll be all right. Because if your longing is to love and obey and serve God with a single-minded, heartfelt devotion, your marriage, it'll take care of itself. Now, Kenny, don't take that out of context and post that somewhere. Because <laughs> you're going to have people going, well, now, Steve, you need to... And what was the one God seeking? The one God was seeking godly offspring. What's the goal? So... If your marriage doesn't have God at the center, are you seeing all the, all the Genesis 2 echoes that show up here? One man, one woman. Both in relationship with one God. What's the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 2? Be fruitful and multiply. What's God's expectation in a marriage? Be fruitful and multiply, whether physically or spiritually with the folks that we just had up here. What's the goal? Raise kids to love the Lord, to follow him, to send them like arrows in the next generation, to speak about the things that God has done in new places and in new spaces. What does God expect out of marriage? Be fruitful. We tell our kids, this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. And we're right at the spot now where our kids are taking up the mantle of their own personal relationship with God. And our goal is to encourage them to get alongside them, to tell them, I can't make that decision for you. You've got to seek God. You've got to open his word. You've got to ask him what he thinks because he loves you and he's in relationship with you. So what does God expect out of a marriage? He expects that marriage to be fruitful. A marriage that takes God out of the center will inevitably have treachery and tension relationally, but it also won't serve anybody and it won't make an impact. It won't have a spiritual impact on the lives of others. And this is the goal of marriage. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So, and here are the two exhortations that Malachi gives up to this point. Malachi, what in the world should we do then? We're spending all this time crying and giving offerings. Malachi says, be faithful to your wife. And here's what it says at the end. Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Pretty clear application, right? Don't commit treason against the covenant vows that you have made before God to your spouse. Verse 16, see when the purpose of marriage drifts from God's intent to man's intent, from the glory of God to the glory of man, you are always going to have the idolatrous preferences of man take hold of your marriage. You're going to face conflict over what it means to serve God or serve you. Verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Now, you may have a Bible. This, this has gone around for a while. If you've been in the church for a number of years, you may have a Bible uh, or you may have heard it said that this is one of the verses in Malachi where God says, I hate divorce. Do you have a Bible that says that? 
The tension in that is whether or not the, uh, literally in the Hebrew, the normal translation would be, he hates divorce. And the question is whether or not that's God or whether or not that's the husband, and the husband is being described with a string of three verbs. You can see how it's translated here, where it doesn't say God hates divorce, but divorce is used in the context of a flow of verbs. So, the man who doesn't love his wife, literally who hates his wife, and therefore divorces her, who releases her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. In the Jewish wedding ceremony, you can see this in the book of Ruth, Ruth asks Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her. And it's a visible picture of providing protection and covenant love and faithfulness to the woman that you're marrying. But God says, if you are not faithful to your vows, if you have not listened to me and put me as the center of your home and your marriage vows, what you are doing is creating an opportunity not for love and blessing and protection and covenant faithfulness. What you are doing is turning those vows into violence. The word for garment is used a lot of times in the Old Testament to speak of robes. So that the robes would characterize the royalty and the regal nature of a king. But now when God looks at the covenant vows and describes it as a garment, God looks down at the garment of the man who has put his uh, garment over his wife to protect her and to love her and to serve her and to be faithful to her. And he looks at it and he only sees sin. He only sees violence. He sees a husband who fails to consider what is best for his wife and instead considers the desires of his own idolatrous preferences. And in that sense, does God hate that? In that sense, does, does God have something to say about a husband who refuses to be faithful to his wife? So, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So you see the application here, don't you? You see how central our worship is to our marriages. You see how serious God takes men and women who will make vows to one another in his name. Now, as we close here, uh, I am aware uh, that there are men and women here with a past who've experienced divorce. Uh, and Malachi chapter 2 is not the only place that you go to build a theology of how the Bible treats divorce. And I'm not saying it is. There are plenty of other passages that need to be built out. But in this context, it is dangerous for us to presume that God has nothing to say about our faithfulness to one another in our marriages. Amen? It's presumptuous to believe that we can come and take no stock of how we are doing in our relationship with our spouses. Because those relationships flow from the worship realities that live in our hearts. And one of the things you notice as you read through the scope of biblical literature is that there is no marriage between a man and a woman that is highlighted as the most important or best marriage. Do you know that? The marriages holistically through the Bible are a train wreck. Do you know why? I know, that's funny to say. And you're thinking right now, what about Abraham and Sit? No. Uh, what about, uh, you're trying to go through. Because the reason they're all a mess is that marriage in the Bible is claimed by God. So when Paul talks about marriage in the book of Ephesians, he says about, he's talking about how a man ought to act, how the woman ought to act. And he says, this is a mystery, but I'm not talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Because your Bible begins with a marriage that craters because of divided loyalties in Adam and Eve. But your Bible ends with a marriage with the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. See, when we feel the weight and the carnage of broken relationships and treachery that exists in marriages that end up with just carnage everywhere, it makes us long for a spouse who is ultimately faithful to us, doesn't it? It makes us long for a groom who will be faithful to the death for us. 
And when we come into Malachi chapter 2 and God tells his people don't be faithless, it's as if he begins the, the ringing of a bell that echoes into the New Testament and we see a Christ who comes with love and care and service and devotion who will be faithful to an unfaithful bride all the way to the end even though it kills him. See, that's the center of a marriage. The only way that you're going to keep your vows in your marriage is that if you understand that Jesus himself has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will always be faithful to you. Now, as we close and as we prepare our hearts for, for the Lord's table here, your marriage might be in a place where you have forgotten the promises you made with the wife of your youth. And as we distribute the elements, as we get ready to partake of the Lord's table, and we go through the three things we do during communion, repenting and uh, remembering and reconciling, I want you, if you're in that place, to take the, the hand of your spouse and do business with the Lord is to remember the wife and the husband of your youth. And you remember how, uh, how faithfulness was promised on that day. And if you, like, we're going to, well, we'll do this here in just a sec, but if that's you and that's your marriage today, I want to tell you, we have people here who are willing to pray with you. People who are willing to come alongside and encourage you. People who are willing to seek the face of God and to ask for his blessing as you reorder the affections of your heart and therefore the promises that you have made to your spouse. So as we go through the Lord's table and you do business with the Lord on those things and we close, you, you find some folks. We're going to have folks here in the back corners and up top right there who would love to pray with you for your marriage, for you to be the man of God that he wants you to be, for you to be the woman of God that God wants you to be. That we might have marriages that live in light of God's faithfulness to us because of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen? So I'm going to pray and close and then we'll take partake of the Lord's table here. Father, we recognize the, um, the accountability that a text like this lays upon all of our marriages. Father, I pray for uh, the marriages that are represented by our body here in Citadel Square. For, I pray for those couples who right now recognize, that's me, I have divided loyalties. That's me, I've allowed other things to say to be of, of utmost importance in our marriage. I've, I've lived in such a way where, God, it's not worshiping you and you alone and what you think and what you have to say, but Father, it's, it's my heart that is prone to wander. It's my heart that is divided, and I have divided loyalties. And Father, I pray that even now, your spirit would minister to our hearts, reminding us of the faithfulness of Christ, reminding us that our marriage themselves can be cleansed by the blood of Christ, that you can restore broken things and bring people back into healthy and whole relationships, that you can bring order where there's only disorder and chaos. So Father, for our marriages in this place, I pray that you would renew them and refresh them as we sing, as we partake of the Lord's table, and we remember what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.